Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Brian Dunning, host of the Skepsoid podcast and the associated In Fact YouTube channel. He's written several books, including Conspiracies Declassified, which is the one I'm uh, kind of most interested in. And he has a new documentary film coming out soon called Science Friction. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great yeah. to finally be here after all these years. <laughs> it is, it is. And our, our paths have uh, kind of crossed a few times, but not, not really that much, you know, over, over the years. It's kind of interesting that we have, have uh, in some ways, kind of similar similar backgrounds and that we're both kind of tech guys who got into uh, into debunking yeah. things. Very much. You know, I was using I was using Metabunk as a resource for a lot of my podcasts um, and, and as a listed reference. Probably for years before I realized that it was your project. I just thought it was an internet forum where just random people posted. And I was always <laughs> surprised at the quality of the content. It's like, boy, the, the first article on all of these threads is really thorough and very well done and very well sourced and all. So, uh, yeah, I was pleased to finally know, oh, there's actually a guy here. And he's someone who we share a lot in common with. So, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's not all not all me, of course, but I, I do write a lot of the uh, the first posts there. It's kind of kind of like my blog in a way, but also with a bunch of other people. Uh, but your your uh, uh, endeavors are very much all about you. Uh, and you know, it's fairly very obvious, like skeptoid. Yeah, I don't I don't have the advantage of uh, of well advantage and disadvantage. It's definitely a two edged sword um, of. Uh, a bunch of collaborators working on it. All the Skeptoid mm. podcast episodes are um, researched and written and done entirely by me. I've got a I've got a Google group that I will post questions to, but not that often. Maybe a couple times a month. Um, and there's I don't know 500 or so people on there. Um, anyone can join it. And occasionally I'll get um, some really amazing stuff. Like I'll need some really obscure reference or some some particular book found or something like that. And uh, that's that's when that use that when that list comes in most helpful. Yeah, it's uh, I think crowdsourcing is uh, it's a very useful thing. And, it certainly uh, can. Be. Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of one of the the great benefits of the internet is that not just that you can look things up so quickly, but you can get so many people uh, looking at, at an issue. And I think that's you know it's kind of got pros and cons. Uh, would you say like because you know so many people can can uh, solve problems, but so many people can also kind of get, you know, sucked down into uh, and magnify them. You get this kind yeah, of feedback I mean, effect. If, 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 you're, if, if I was going to be doing something like, if I had a forum, for example, of, for research for each upcoming podcast, like doing it a little bit different from the way you do it, but let's say I had a forum for uh, shows that have not yet been produced and I'm waiting for, you know, the whole thread to wind up and everyone to learn everything and do all the research... I would have limited confidence in the quality of, <laughs> of the information. Um, and that's probably uh, paranoid on my part. And it probably would be very good quality. But um, it's tough because just as the Internet is, it provides the democratization of content, as, as you and I enjoy with, with distributing our materials and the ability to compete with major media outlets and stuff like that. It, it also it has the Wikipedia issue of, you know, there's nobody is nobody knows too much about the quality of this newly democratized content. Yeah, yeah. your uh, your podcast Skeptoid is a wonderful resource. I was just going through all the episodes. You've got nearly seven hundred episodes now. Uh, yeah, I'm working on number seven hundred this morning. In fact, all right? Yeah, 
That's quite amazing. That's uh, <laughs> so you've been doing it since like what 2006? 2006. Yeah, we just uh, celebrated our 13th yes. birthday and through the uh, through the month of October. Yes, you uh, did a 24-hour uh, <laughs> podcastathon. Thir- 13 hour, but yeah, it was Oh. Uh, still. <laughs> I was I as soon as we had that idea and uh, I say we because um I've got I've got uh, three employees now here at Skeptoid. Wow. Um they work on fundraising. They don't work on the content side. Uh, but as soon as we had that idea to do this 13-hour video marathon, um, I, you know, initially I thought, oh, great, that'll be lots of fun. And then it, <laughs> it comes like, okay, how's my voice going to hold up for 13 yeah, hours? That's a lot of talking. <laughs> it's a lot of talking, yeah. So it, was, it was brutal, but it was fun and well worth it. Yeah, so you you, uh, you you invited a bunch of people, and I, I was one of the people you invited. But uh, when I went to sign up uh, for the thing, the only thing that was left, I think, was something like three in the morning my time. So it was uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really that job of I, I should have been inviting people in waves according to their time zones, and I I didn't do that. And I also uh, had a list of people that were like my my second tier invitees, um, many of whom I realized, oh gosh, they really should have been my First, I ended up offending a number of my friends. Why didn't you have me? <laughs> really? So I really screwed that whole thing up. Well, I guess you, uh, over the years, you must have a lot of friends. Uh, like, you, you and I, we, we go to skeptical conferences, and yeah. it's, it's interesting, like, the, the community, the skeptical community. Uh, how, do, how do you kind of feel yourself fitting into the skeptical community, like things like, you know, PsyCon and the old the amazing meetings and things like that. Is that you know, like your, I, your people? It, 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 it isn't. It isn't. It isn't. I mean, I mean every, every, you know, every, every group, group of people, people has all kinds of people, people in it. That's, that's sort of one of my ongoing themes. Mm. It seems to get reinforced for me all the time. So when I, when I go to the conferences, um, typically I only go to the conference if I'm, if I'm working there, I'm, if I'm either a speaker or if we have a, a table for Skeptoid or something, I, I rarely go to conferences just in a, as an attendee for fun. But if I did, the reason would be just to see friends, really. Yeah. Um, as you point out, I've met a ton of people in 13 years of doing this. Pretty much everyone in our world of, of um, you know, sort of the skeptical end of science communication. Uh, and, you know, science communication blurs off into so many different genres. You know, it's got the whole science fiction. It's got the whole cosplay, the maker community. And I, mm-hmm. I know people in all of these worlds. And that's really been the most rewarding and, and funnest part of this is getting to make so many extraordinary friendships. So uh, it's a blast. Yeah, no, that's it's kind a- of reason I enjoy going to the conferences. I, I missed this this last CSI con because I had something else going on, but uh, uh, it looked like fun, and I kind of regretted not uh, not going there and seeing everybody again. Are you uh, going to tell us anything about what that was? Because there was uh, there was speculation and there was uh, there was discussion. Uh, no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I was just meeting some people in uh, in New York for something, which might be revealed in the future. But, okay. Uh, can't we'll, talk about we'll it right that. now. Top secret, top secret, meeting with the Illuminati or something. But, uh... <laughs> there, were, there were some top secret things going on in Vegas as well. Uh, Kenny Biddle was doing some stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you'd want me to say anything, so I won't, but... Um... Yeah, I was like the only person not involved in anything top secret. Really? <laughs> I guess that means that you're not actually a member of the Illuminati. Uh, is that you know that type of accusation you know, that you're a government shill? Is that something you you still get 
I'm assuming Isn't you do. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, daily, literally daily. Hmm. Um, it, it, if I look at my, if I look at my, I have a, a number of Twitter accounts, one that I can just look at to, that's totally unfiltered and everything. And when I look at that, I realize, wow, 15 people called me a government shill today or whatever. <laughs> I don't see it on my normal Twitter feed because it's all, it has a million people muted. I don't block anyone, but I mm-hmm. mute tons of people. Um, so yeah, it, 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 um, it's incredible because, you know, with, with, with Skeptoid, with the podcast covering such a diverse range of topics, you know, everything from all the hard sciences to all the urban legends and everything, it's all these very many genres. And for each of them, there's people who believe I'm some paid shill. I'm a paid shill for Monsanto if I talk about uh, GMOs. I'm a paid shill for Big Pharma if I talk about homeopathy. I'm a paid shill uh, from the government if I talk about the aliens at Area 51. Uh, it, it's so funny when you look at the logic of that. Uh, so I remember doing an episode on um, on um, Holocaust denial. Of course, I was a paid shill for the state of Israel or, or whatever it was, the Zionists. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, does that make sense that they would be so desperate for PR that they would hire someone to do a podcast about Bigfoot and stuff for 13 years just to have them slip in one episode about Holocaust denial. <laughs> just kind of just a, a fart in the breeze of this whole giant stream of content. Would that be worth what it would cost to hire me for 13 years? Yeah. Uh, the logic I don't quite follow. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense, of course. It could be that all these different people are paying you at different times, like the big, big Bigfoot I don't know who that would be. <laughs> big zoology that has to keep Bigfoot suppressed or yeah. for grant money. There's kind of a, a thing in skepticism called uh, Bigfoot skepticism, which is kind of like a derogatory term that people use for like looking at things like Bigfoot or UFOs when they feel like you should be looking at things like, like uh, I don't know, alternative medicine or political right. conspiracies. How do you feel about about that criticism? I mean, that's that's a that's a, a theme that comes up a lot. And I just did an episode last week. I think it comes out next week on a particular uh, a ghost ship. This old mm. legend about a ghost ship. That there's probably nobody who you know is passionate about this their belief in this ghost ship uh, to the point that they go insane on the internet about it. It's it's a relatively unimportant topic. As you, and you could say the same thing about Bigfoot. So why why waste time talking about something like that that's obviously fake? And the reason, as I often point out on the show when I do these episodes, is that these it's the same thought processes that lead to belief in Bigfoot that lead to belief in alternative medicine, 9-11 truthing, etc., etc., etc. And so no matter who the listener is, they can find an episode of Skeptoid that does not challenge any of their cherished beliefs. I don't go after any of their sacred cows, but it still teaches them the lessons that they need to learn and understand so that they can come to challenge their sacred cows on their own. And so I think that there's always going to be a place for for Bigfoot skepticism. Plus, it's fun. It's just fun to talk about some of these these urban legends that that you know maybe we heard about when we were kids or read about or saw on uh, Leonard Nimoy's show or you know it's it's fun it is yeah and that's yeah i guess part of the reason a lot of people uh you know do skepticism in that area and like ufo's and things what 
were you uh, into this as a child? Like, uh, what, what were your kind of childhood interests, like UFOs yeah. and things like that? Hugely. Um, I, I, I had all the books on Bigfoot, all the books on UFOs, mm-hmm. all the books on ghosts and hauntings and everything. I watched all the TV shows. I believed every word of it, hmm. every word of it. And I would go about my daily life being amazed that the adults around me didn't seem to care that there's these huge hairy monsters running around in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> and the, so, you know, and of course, when you're into that, you, you seem to always be into science fiction too. That seems yes. to be the, the, the other common thread. And you, so you grow up with a group of people and this group of people just, we all tend to go into the sciences in some way, shape or form. And so I was just kind of along that journey. I was, you know, floating in that river along with everyone, and it took me to the same place it takes everyone on this path, which is eventually coming to just love science and and love the idea of doing research and finding the answers to difficult questions, solving mysteries. Um, I've solved mysteries on Skeptoid that blew my mind when I was a child, Mm -hmm. and that's giving myself a present after, you know, 40 years. So I, I just, I, I cannot enjoy it more than, than what I do. What, what would you say is the best mystery that you solve that you're most proud of? Um, I always go back to, um, uh, I'm spacing on the name of the house, the most haunted house in England, Borley Rectory. All right. I'd, I'd read all the books about Borley Rectory and, um, about the, uh, the, 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 the biggest, the biggest thing that that blew my mind in that was the automatic writing appearing on the walls. And the book even had photographs of this writing on walls that was said to have appeared while people watched. Hmm. So here you've got you know, a photograph of the wall, and, there, and there's wallpaper, and you see... Um, uh, what did it say? It said, Marianne, get help, things like that. Um, and to me, that was beyond skepticism. People were watching as the words appeared, and I thought there could be no, no non-paranormal explanation to that. Mm-hmm. And when I finally did the research on that, I learned two things. First of all, all the books on Borley Rectory were written by this one guy, Harry Price, who was a career, basically P.T. Barnum, making stuff up. And then I, uh, in, in somewhere else, um, some other skeptical work that had been published before... I found a detailed description of the seance in which this automatic writing had appeared. And it wasn't on a wall. It was on wallpaper, but simply because a roll of wallpaper was the biggest convenient roll of paper that they had available. They rolled it out on a table, huh. and they were using um, a, a planchette, basically the Ouija board thing, yeah. where they all put their hands on it, and it was holding the pencil. And that was when the writing appeared while people watched. <laughs> That's very different. You know, they kind of left out that detail in the Harry Price version of the book. And somewhere along the line, that detail got lost. And now when you read any, any modern account written about Borley Rectory, it, it doesn't make that connection. It made the same mistake that I made when I was a kid, which was that this wall, the writing appeared on a wall automatically while people were watching with no hand holding a pencil or anything. So that, that difference between wall and wallpaper... Um, was was really the key, and that's that's the thing that I've enjoyed the most. That's the single biggest wow moment for me in all the years of Skeptoid. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it's very interesting how uh, 
it shows that these stories kind of grow over time and they change over time and that uh you know your people's memories of them uh change over time you know one thing you, you, with all these stories they they get recycled a lot and every time they get recycled it's like someone writes a new article on this and they're just kind of incorporating older articles and then the new article becomes the more authoritative one and then it kind of uh it morphs and evolves i guess and the, yeah. the more po- the more popular ones <laughs> survive and the more popular ones might be the uh uh ones that have the more interesting uh, features in them like writing on some wallpaper isn't interesting <laughs> but writing appearing on a wall it's fascinating so that story dies and then this story carries on I, I love that that particular detail, I'm sure, was an honest mistake. Yeah. Because yeah. in some account, it said the writing was appeared on the wallpaper. And to any normal person reading that, you assume that the wallpaper is mounted on a wall, right? You would, So yes. the next author just said wall yeah. instead of wallpaper. But yeah, it, it, as you say, all of these stories, the way they get copied and pasted and, and, and rewritten, it's just this giant game of telephone going over the decades. <laughs> the story changes and changes a little bit each time. So few people are doing original research now. Um, this ghost, the ghost ship um, episode that I mentioned that I just finished working on, um, it's popular in the Bermuda Triangle literature. In hmm. fact, that's essentially the only place you find it now. Um, and when I found the actual route that this ship took, it went straight across the North Atlantic, um, You know, basically kind of going north from England and then coming down south to New York. It never right. went remotely near the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle. It just what nobody thought to check that. Yeah, I guess it sounds it sounds good though. So it sounds like a fit. So the, the, we'll take it. It's one of ours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah, I, I like what you were saying about the culture of types of people who get into this thing. I mean, it's kind of like like nerd culture, really, for want of a better thing. You, you're talking about things like you know mod makers and. Uh, cosplay and things like that. This is the type of things you would see on the Big Bang Theory. Uh, Very much, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny how there's such a there's such an intersection between straight up sci-fi fantasy fiction and hard science. <laughs> you know, when you when you go to going to Dragon Con, I think is a great example yeah. of that because that is where you will see some of your favorite hard scientists. Disguised as some character from a video game, or it's it's really a fun angle that a lot of people I think would appreciate more if they knew more about it. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people who grew up reading science fiction um, go into the sciences because of that. I mean, I know I my interest in science now is very much rooted in reading science fiction uh, as a as a young a young boy. Essentially, like my dad had a big collection of science fiction books. Mm. Uh, anyway, it's kind of older stuff as well, like back from the fifties uh, and sixties, and uh, reading that kind of piqued my interest. Uh, and uh, yeah, then again, watching stuff like Doctor Who uh, on TV was uh, was was a very <laughs> very important part of my youth. Who who among us was not in love with Sarah Jane Smith for <laughs> hopelessly for decades? <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> yes, the. Uh, so I was looking over your uh, your last seven hundred episodes on, uh, on on Skeptoid, and uh, well, actually, I was looking over your your YouTube channel. You you, you only have about sixty um, videos. Do you do you like? I suppose it takes a lot more work to do the videos. 
Is that why there is it, uh, it not does, so and and the, it's it's a lot more work, as you point out. It's it's a lot more expensive, um, and uh, I really don't have time for it. So what I do is those are all crowdfunded, and I only produce one after the thermometer is filled. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of video content on YouTube, and um, it's 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 something that I just really never hit critical mass on. Um, I still produce them. There's still valuable resources to be out there. Um, and part of the reason we're going to continue doing that and continue doing them better because, you know, there's been quality issues with a lot of them and, and things like that. Uh, it's because that we're, we're a nonprofit at Skeptoid Media and everything that we do, what we promise to our donors is that we provide it as educational material to teachers as part of these free material right. packages. So, if one we make a video and if it gets 15 views on YouTube, that's fine. I don't really care because it's it's its real purpose is being provided as part of this educational package. So everything we do, ideally, uh, always working toward this better and better is 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 dual purpose. It's intended to be fun and entertaining for the general public, and it's also intended to be part of a formalized education package. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it's uh, I think it's really good to have resources available like that. Uh, for some of the more obscure stuff, because of course, like on on YouTube, it used to be a bit of a a, a dark pit of uh, of nonsense, and they've kind of cleaned it up a bit recently. And uh, I think they've kind of been downranking some of the. Uh, didn't one of your videos get taken down because it's uh, yeah when they the line? that's that's happened a lot lately when they uh, started they really ratcheted up their their automated um, yeah taking down of videos. And they really just go by the title. So my video on Holocaust denial got taken down. And um, my whole channel got demonetized Hmm. because of the titles of a number of these episodes. Now, there's no human being actually involved in the process. You know, you can can appeal the process. And in a few days, they almost always um, reverse that. But I was able to get most of it taken care of through just kind of a back-channel connection with a a friend with friends in high places who said, no, 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 the Skeptoid channel really needs to be whitelisted. And, and that's helped basically solve the problem. Um, the only thing now is when there's episodes like uh, debunking 9-11 truth, um, mm-hmm. advertisers don't necessarily want their ads on that content, whether it's pro-science or not. It's just a subject they want to avoid. So a number of those episodes are, are demonetized, which is which is fine. I mean, we make you know, a matter of hundreds of dollars a month on YouTube. It's not, it's not a, a major source of income for us. It's mostly just to have the content out there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it almost fits all on one page, your, your videos here. It's interesting. You kind of see uh, uh, how styles in shirts have changed over the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have got uh, better fitting shirts over the years, I would say. <laughs> That's that's the biggest comment I get on my my 2008 video. <laughs> my God, how long ago is 2008 now? Uh, that video I did called "Here Be Dragons," which was a 40 minute video. I made the whole thing myself with a camera on a tripod uh, and scripts taped to the camera. Right. <laughs> it was like a zero resource production. But the the most common comment is how I'm wearing a different shirt in every scene. <laughs> it's like really that's what you're focusing on okay fine lesson learned i'll wear the same shirt next time yeah i guess it could be a distraction for people like (laughs) but uh yeah so uh let's talk about your book uh 
Conspiracies yes. declassified. And this is like a, Which, um, it's kind of like a skeptoid style thing in that you do like a whole bunch of different things and you do a nice neat kind of explanation of each one. Here's a I'm trying to reach for my copy. Here's my dog-eared copy, the one that right. I do whenever I have an author's reading or something. I take this. It's got all my writing and scribblings throughout it. But um yeah, so this this was something that um just kind of came to me out of the blue. Simon and Schuster called and said, hey, we're doing um, this series of 50 of this, 50 of that, and we want to do 50 conspiracy theories. Um, do you think you could think of 50 conspiracy theories? <laughs> you know, I laughed. I did an export from the Skeptoid database with the conspiracy theory category, and it was about 200 different shows right. I'd already done. <laughs> so it became a, a matter of whittling it down to the, the most popular 50. Um, it was It was a lot of fun. It was you know, I'd already done all of the research, so I really just had to rewrite episodes, reformat them, change because each chapter in this book is, it's like you know, what's what's the um, what's the theory, what's the truth, what's the the explanation. So I had to break it all down into these sections. For the one on flat earthing, um, for the explanation, I wanted just one sentence. I just wanted to say, the world <laughs> is round. It's going to be the shortest chapter in the book, and they wouldn't let me do that. So that's interesting because uh, <laughs> that's a, kind of an issue you have with the flat earthers is that it's very difficult to take them seriously because they're uh, you know they're obviously so obviously wrong. But then I guess you could say the same thing about a lot of things like the supernatural stuff. Yeah, you know, no, and, and that's a good point, and, and I, I've sort of modified my opinion on that um, because. It makes sense to treat it seriously in the same way that you do, like the, the Bigfoot subjects that we're talking about. So it actually does have fascinating sociology behind it. It has really interesting history yeah, into yeah. how and when the, the theory, you know, appeared and then disappeared, was gone for decades, and then reappeared in what was it, two thousand five? I think was sort of the case yeah, zero around the this guy that made a YouTube video and a and a a PDF document at this released them at the same time. And you look in Google trends and flat earth was zero for decades until mm -hmm. suddenly boom. And then you can see each of those early videos appearing on YouTube and the huge spike in search terms for flat earth. And that's the way kind of all these stories appear and get spread. And so it's not a matter of, Gee, don't people have any science education? It's a matter of how does misinformation spread in society, and that is an important subject that's worthy of worthy of study. So I, I, I don't laugh at the flat Earth thing anymore. It's it's something that's, mm. um, you know, obviously you laugh at the idea of it, but as far as a subject for skeptical analysis, it's very valid. Yeah, I went through the same process myself. Like uh, I originally posted. Uh, a long kind of explanation of why I thought it was ridiculous to even talk about it. And this was, I think, maybe like four or five years ago I did this. And then kind of it just kind of crept in and you, you realize that more and more people actually do believe it. it. It wasn't just people like, you know, joking around, even though there's a lot of that in there. Yeah. There's, there's people who, you know, for some reason, they can't wrap their heads around the idea that, that the Earth is actually round and that the scientists have it right. And you know, it is actually worth worth addressing. And now I now I have this huge section of my my forums. I think it's also it's it's kind of fascinating to uh, nerdy types uh, because you get to do all these fun little bits of geometry and uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like working out the math on things. And you think you think you can explain it to people, 
but it's it's very very difficult because they don't really understand the math so it's uh it's kind of like bashing your head against a brick wall it's kind of frustrating frustrating do you remember there was a um there was a, a a theory or or a guess or something that that the flat earth society and the people who believe in the flat earth they don't really think that they're just doing it as a sort of logical rhetorical mm-hmm. exercise yeah i never found any any evidence that that ever existed I, was, I heard plenty of people say that or propose yeah. that, but I don't recall ever coming across anyone actually treating it that way. There was a, a Canadian Flat Earth Society, uh, which I think was in the 70s. There uh, was. Which, which was actually uh, oh, yeah. set up to do that. It was like some, some guy, like a philosopher, and he set up this organization. He didn't really believe it, but he wanted to make people like question science and things like that. So that that okay. one was actually that, and I think that the wasn't pr- the guy that 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 um, tried to pick up from. Um, I'm forgetting their name. The elderly couple that lived in the California desert that uh, their house burned no, down. I don't, I, I'm not sure if it was, uh, but it, it's it's in it's in the the book. Um, yeah, you know, what was it like? The history of a dangerous idea, the flat Earth book. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that, but it was. That's the book you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. But anyways, but yeah, it's the there the have actually been people who uh, did it for philosophical reasons, uh, and some people, you know, they start out with this this philosophy of zeteticism, uh, which is you know a terrible not, word. No, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a poor podcasting word because no one can pronounce it. Zeteticism. No, no, never mind. But that that word, <laughs> uh, and. You know, they, they don't believe in anything, basically, unless they can prove it for themselves. So uh, there's, right. there's a long history yeah. of... Uh, that uh, was the yeah. name of the Australian Skeptics magazine for a long time, the Zetetic. Yeah. Like, I, I can't imagine a worse name for your magazine. <laughs> Who's going to pick like, that what? up off the shelf in interest? Ooh, yeah. I, I thought actually... I thought actually the original Skeptical Inquirer was, was called that, either that or Skeptic magazine in, in America. The it Zetetic. was one of that's maybe the Australian one. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, is it, it, flat Earth is a very extreme thing, and you know like we both didn't do it at first. Are there any conspiracies now that you think are kind of beyond the pale that you wouldn't that you don't talk about? That I don't talk about, um, like I don't know the lizard people. Do you talk about that one? I you know I did I did an episode on the lizard people very early on in. Mm-hmm in Skeptoid, and with, you know, there's a certain amount you can say about um, uh, David Icke and, you know, looking at the uh, blurry lines, the video artifacts in a VHS tape. Uh, you know, we don't really have that sort of video artifacting anymore with modern yeah, technology, yeah. so I don't hear that so much. So my episode focused more on the the genesis of this idea of lizard people living in underground cities um, particularly underneath Los Angeles and underneath um, Mount Shasta, and I, I did come up with a with a really interesting history going all the way back to, um, as far as I could tell, um, the first time that that became a thing, which was in in the gold rush days in Los Angeles. Hmm. A guy who was um, he got a lot of press in the in in the whatever if the newspaper was still called the Los Angeles Times, and I don't remember. Um, he got a lot of newspaper press with his theory, and he he produced a map of all these tunnels underneath Los Angeles 
that um, and locations of big caches of gold stored in these tunnels, and he had uh, found these all using his his uh, X-ray photography camera or something like that, which turned out to be a dowsing pendulum that he just held, and for some reason he called that an X-ray photography yeah. device, and. Where he got this information, this story about the people who built this underground tunnel, uh, came from a guy who, as far as I can tell, was pretending to have been from the Navajo Nation. I was able to track down... The, the Navajo Nation actually has a fascinatingly uh, uh, accessible public database of birth and death records uh, going back as far as they've been able to go. And, and I was able to try and find, verify that no such person as this guy had ever been in those databases. I think he said he was an Apache, and I believe that's included in the Navajo Nation archives. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Um, and he had a story about an ancient Native American belief, um, and I went to the relevant Native American texts talking about all of their folklore and found no mention of anything remotely like what he was talking about. So I believe that that ended up being sort of case zero for the, the idea of um, the lizard clan uh, living underneath Los Angeles and Mount Shasta. So that, that was a really fun, really fun episode. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's interesting, specifically... Mount Shasta and Los Angeles. Mount Shasta is kind of like uh, <laughs> I, I drive past Mount Shasta a lot because I drive up to to Southern Oregon because uh, I have family there, uh, and I, I know like in the Shasta area, it's it's a very alternative culture area. Lots of kind of uh, kind of hippie types and New Age types, and uh, a lot of people who believe in the the chemtrail conspiracy theory. Uh, I wonder if that's in a, partly influenced by the presence of of local underground aliens, or well, not aliens, just lizards. I haven't actually heard that, though, from, from Shasta. I think maybe it's something that they've forgotten about. <laughs> he, they're in there with the, uh, with the Lemurians and the, uh, uh, of course, there's the, there's the Bigfoot, and then there's an invisible race, and then there's a race of, of like, tiny gnomes, and then there's the Nordic aliens. Mount Shasta, apparently, is just full of, full of beings. Yeah, <laughs> It's yeah. like a Lord of the Rings book. <laughs> Well, it's quite a dramatic mountain if you, you've ever driven by it. It's, uh, it's, it is. Uh, yeah. You can imagine that people people would definitely think it's a magical place. But like, speaking of chemtrails, like I was looking through uh, Skeptoid for episodes on on chemtrails. I think there's only there's only one chemtrail episode. I is typically it... don't repeat episodes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I haven't. There's so many basic subjects I still haven't covered yet that I don't I don't go back and do a new one. So. I, I do updates and things like that, and occasionally I'll I'll put updates on a transcript. Uh, but you know, yeah. often aren't. It's like the, it's not like there's no new science about chemtrails. That's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't actually. Yeah, I, I I wrote loads about chemtrails. So I have this contrail science uh, website. Oh yeah, you sure have. Yeah. Uh, and but I I haven't updated it for a long time, and haven't really written very much about them on on Metabunk because nothing's really happening. It's almost like. Uh, it's run its course in a way and kind of settled down into this steady state where it's just going to become this conspiracy that some people believe in, but nothing's really happening. Uh, there was one, one part of it, like speaking about Shasta, is that the, one of the guys behind the, the conspiracy theory had this idea that there was all this UV radiation coming down and burning up all the trees and all the trees were going to die over the next few years. And he pointed to some trees that like, were dead and said, this tree has been killed. 
Uh, and he was like this very popular guy promoting the chemtrail theory. And he made this kind of a prediction, I guess, like like three years ago, saying that you know all the trees are going to die. But that was during the drought, and then like the last year or two, we've had we've had pretty good rains over the winter. And then I drove through Shasta like a few weeks ago, and it's just beautiful verdant green everywhere, and there's no problem whatsoever. So he must be seeing this every day. I wonder if there's any kind of cognitive dissonance going on there with with that. But you know, I think I think like some conspiracy theories do do run their course, and they kind of like you know just become like like JFK for example. Like, did you have you ever written about JFK? Like this? Yes, kind of... I did. That was one that I resisted. To answer your earlier question, I resisted that for years. Yeah. Um, you know, so, Vince Bugliosi's book on that is mm-hmm. sixteen hundred pages. I think you know it's a, it's literally that thick. And I'm going, how am I going to distill that into a fifteen minute podcast? I just thought there's just no way to do it. And so, um, I when I finally did my episode on JFK. I did not attempt to specifically debunk any of the claims because they're countless. There's hundreds, hundreds of of these JFK conspiracy theories. Instead, I just talked about the general, you know, the general phenomenon of how and why they appear. I felt that was really the only the only way I could do any sort of justice to that topic. Yeah, I, I don't talk about uh, uh, JFK at all or, or really investigate it. There's a couple of things on Metabank, but it, there's so much being written about it. Uh, you know the book you mentioned, and the case closed book. Like if you just yeah, you could read either one of those books, and you get yeah. a, a great overview of what's going on. Uh, but you, you you mentioned um, we're talking about uh, new information coming up. Um, I was about to do an episode on the the Tamam Shud case, the Summerton man, because people have been repeatedly asking for that over the years. Hmm. Which was, you know, it was a a body that washed up on the beach in Australia. Right, I remember that. And he had like a weird encoded thing in his in his pocket. And I I don't I don't remember too much about it because I haven't done an episode on it. Um, And I was just about to do that episode when suddenly, boom, up pops in my Google alerts. There's new news on that now. After decades, some researcher has gotten permission to get his body exhumed so they can do DNA testing. Because you know, the main part of the mystery is that he's totally unidentified. There's no one he could possibly be. So they might actually crack that case. So I'm kind of glad that I <laughs> didn't do an episode on that yet. Yeah. But that's rare. That's about the only case I can think of where you take an old, old, you know, cold case and all of a sudden uh, the episode becomes screwed up because there's actually new information. That just, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. I think you not can happen with Bigfoot. They're not going to find a Bigfoot. You know, they're not going to catch a ghost. They're not. So I'm not worried about most of the episodes. <laughs> Something people ask me uh, a lot is like, you know, what are you going to do when uh, when it's UFOs are disclosed? How are you going to feel when you uh, <laughs> are proved to be wrong? <laughs> uh, I suppose people will tell you about that. Tell you that about every single topic that you uh, that you cover, which must be a, a lot of uh, a lot of egg on your face when finally everything is revealed to be true. I remember one guy challenged me to drink a drink a six pack of diet coke every day for a month and see if you're still alive. <laughs> I said, I not diet coke, but diet Dr Pepper is pretty much my fuel. I've been doing at least ten a day for ten years. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to drink probably at least a six pack of diet coke every day. 
uh, <laughs> I, I, I stopped just because it was you know, kind of pointless, really. It was just kind of a habit I was doing. But yeah, I, I had a, I have a fridge full of Diet Coke and I would be going there and drinking Diet Coke all the time. I actually, it became like a, a motif in some of my 9-11 debunking videos because I always use these Diet Coke cans to simulate various aspects. So I would build like little towers of Diet Coke cans or I'll stand on them and say, this represents World Trade Center 7. But now I've stopped drinking Diet Coke, so... I have to. I, I had to. I had to stock up on empty diet coke cans before I, I gave it up. So I've got enough to continue my my can experiments in the future. So what did you switch to? Uh, water. Just plain just water. water. Yeah, I yeah. tried that. I can't 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 seem to get through with just water. Well, you just uh, you just got to like get used to it. It's, uh, I was inspired to do this by Stephen Fry indirectly because he in one of his books he said like the the way to give up sugar in coffee. It's just simply don't do it for a week and then you get used to it, which which yeah. worked. I tried. I used to have I sugar do. in my coffee all the time, and then I uh, you know, stopped it and got used to it. And then I did the same thing with 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 diet coke. That took longer, I must say. It was probably like a couple of months before the cravings for another diet coke actually went away. But now now they're gone. Well, it was a long time ago that I switched from regular Dr Pepper to diet Dr Pepper, and that was mm. a hard change to make because it was disgusting. But it didn't take long at all before a regular Dr. Pepper is just disgustingly sickly sweet. I, I couldn't drink one now. I couldn't force one down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, but, an, it's an interesting thing. Like the human brain does get used to things. And this kind of bringing it back to the whole conspiracy theory thing, like a, something, yeah, some advice that people give to people is to take a break from conspiracy theories. Like a lot of people, I think, because they do it over and over again, they're consuming like YouTube videos just the same way I consume Diet Coke. You get used to having that little fix uh, of uh, of conspiracism. And if you can get someone just to take a break from it for like even just a week, it can actually really help them kind of move away from from that type of thing. That's a good idea. Get out into the world. You know, yeah. meet some friends at the pub. Don't Indeed. talk about <laughs> different friends. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, of friends, like your your documentary, Science Friction, uh, this uh, yeah, I, you you previewed it at uh, a Psycon last week. We did. We had we had about a forty five minute, um, forty eight minute cut, um, which is about uh, probably half or so what its final length will be. Um, uh, it, it was a rough cut, but it, it it held together really well, and it gave the the audience, we had about 110 people in the room, were mostly people who had uh, donated the, to the film. Mm. So we really wanted to, you know, it's been in production for so long, we really wanted to give them something to say, here, look, here we are doing what, you, what you're paying us to do. Uh, and um, the, the reception was fantastic. It was, you know, I, I'm, I'm like one of the creators of it, so I've got this, you know, hypercritical vision of it and everything. I, I hate everything about it. Oh, this all needs to be better. So I don't. I see that, but the audience didn't see that at all. They were they loved it, and um, I was super pleased at the reception that it got. And even even in its dramatically uncompleted state, um, it's going to be such a great film. the The interviewees that we have are so fantastic, and their stories are so good. Um, yeah. So these. I mean, just so we didn't really mention what it's actually oh, about, yeah. which is good point. <laughs> Uh, I will mention what it's about. It's it is it's all interviews with scientists who have been misrepresented on television. Basically, they go on a Shark Week show and they get edited to make it sound like yes, scientists do believe that the monster shark does still exist. 
Uh, and, and many of these cases are dramatic where they'll just, they'll make these little razor blade edits in someone's sentence to make it sound like they said the exact opposite of what they said. And they'll cover it with these little video edits. So we've got, um, we've got all kinds of cases from going back a, a couple of decades in, in, in some of these. Um, and even from today, um, there is a series running right now. I won't say which, which has um, a number of expert episodes and in, in, uh, experts in, in each episode. And two of them that are running this season, we had our own hidden camera and hidden microphones set mm. up to record what was actually said. So part of my job is watching every episode of this show as it drops each week, uh, scrolling through, finding our experts, and listening carefully to how they're being represented. And so far, they've been honestly represented this season. Um, but it's happened to both of them in the past. I'm hoping it's going to happen to them this season because we've got great uh, backup video and backup audio of what was actually said to compare it with in the film. Um, and I should point out, we always do this in accordance with state laws for recording people with or without their knowledge. We have to follow that very carefully. Um, and you've got, um, you got people like, uh, do you know Ken Fader, the uh, uh, archaeologist? No, I don't. He is probably the most animated, fun speaker you'll ever right. encounter. For his interview, we just set up the camera and said, go, Ken, and sat back. And I think it's an 11-minute long clip in the film that's just him telling this one story. And it's really the highlight of the film. So got got some great personalities in it with some great stories. So it's being a feature film, it's gonna, it is intended for a commercial release. Um, it, it, it probably won't be in theaters, but it'll probably be on Showtime, HBO, something like that. And then it'll mm -hmm. go to the streaming services. So we're just trying to bring the skeptical message to a broader audience. Um, yeah. It's kind of what, what uh, we're all about here. Yeah. Uh, get it off the internet and get it out into the world. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I've had similar experiences myself, like being interviewed and obviously they cut things down because they interview you for like an hour sure. and then they use you for like, uh, like a couple of uh, seconds sometimes. Yeah. Uh, do you like from, from doing all this uh, uh, research for the film, do you have like advice for people who are going to be on uh, one of these shows, like how they should act and what they should what they should say? Well, obviously, you need to be very careful. Um, I I did a sting myself for this show, where I said nobody believes this, but and then I gave the editor a pause, you know, blah hmm. blah blah, some. BS idea, and then I gave the editor a pause, and then I said, and of course that's not true because of this. Trying to bait them to use that. <laughs> um, but you can do that without leaving the pauses for the editor, as long as you're just very careful about how you phrase every sentence. And as you know from your experience, um, the director is going to sit there and prompt you, can you say it this way? Can you say it that way? Yes. Um, would it be valid to say this? And he'll just keep making you answer the same question in the same sentence, a hundred times until he gets something he thinks he can use. So you can do that. You can, you can ask them if you can record your own audio. Um, I did it once. Uh, you, they typically don't like that, but I did it once. And hey, I'm this is for my own reel. I'm trying to expand my reel. Do you mind if I set this up? Um, so ask if you can do that. Um, yeah. Tell them you expect not. Tell them that you expect not to be edited out of context and. <laughs> You'll be very upset about it if you are. Tell them that after the, you do the interview. Um, yeah, I think I. Uh, it, it's it gives possible. You, 
it gives you an interesting perspective, uh, like having been on these shows, when you see how the sausage is made. It kind of, in a way, not, not, it almost ruins like that type of show for me now, because now you can tell when someone says something that there's a producer just off to the side who's prompted them to say something in a certain way. You know, this, this really amazing thing looks like it's coming out of the ocean. You know, that's not what they're actually thinking. That's yeah. something that the producer has somehow contrived for them to actually say. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it gives you a very different perspective. Another thing that it's done is when, when we're watching these shows now and there's someone who briefly appears with, to say something, you don't know who this person is anymore because no matter what they're saying, they could be a scientist who actually knows what's going on, who is just being, you know, kind of deceptively edited or just using a corner of one sentence, or it could be a, a total wooist person. It's kind of broken down the barrier between who's an expert and who's not. It's democratized expertism. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the little, uh, the titles they give you, uh, I've had, I think I've had like three different titles. I had like, oh. uh, like I think, well, chemtrail expert, contrail expert, aviation expert, and video expert. <laughs> Which, <laughs> maybe like I'm a chemtrail expert, but <laughs> I wouldn't I describe gotta, myself as a I video I got to tell you my favorite, my favorite story from this. Um, I was doing, um, I was talking, one of these shows, these producers were, were talking to me. They wanted to come and interview me for, um, I don't even remember what it was. Um, and we were all set up to do it, and they were they they missed a couple of calls that we had. And I I called them up and said, "Hey, you know my schedule's filling up. Did you still want to do this or not?" And they said, "Well, I'll be honest with you. Everyone knows about science friction. Nobody will touch you with a ten foot pole." Hmm. <laughs> and on the one hand, I said, "Great, um, <laughs> great that everyone knows about science friction." First of all, <laughs> um, but the other thing that happened is that then about a week after that call, um, I see on Twitter. Uh, somebody says, hey, my favorite guy, Brian Dunning, is on Mysteries at the Museum right now. I go, Mysteries? I don't think I have on Mysteries at the Museum. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do a little uh, searching online. I find the episode and download it. They had an actor portray me. What? <laughs> they had some guy sitting at a desk. <laughs> and then um, who's, who's the narrator on Mysteries at the Museum? What's his name? Uh, whoever he is. Great guy. I like him. Um, uh, he's a... Science writer Brian Dunning did some research and he <laughs> found this out. And they keep cutting back to this guy. And it's some, some guy who doesn't look anything like me, uh, of course, with his huh. Windows PC and his dial telephone and all these things that are exactly my desk and his bright pink shirt. They keep cutting back to him and he's, you know, going, ah, oh, I gotta try. This is so difficult to figure out where he's talking on the phone. <laughs> and it was, it was comical. I love yeah. that. Did they did they put like a little reenactment uh, thing at the bottom of the screen? No, they, and and I believe I am unique among all of my friends in science communication that I have been now portrayed by an actor. That's very impressive. Yes. <laughs> so they can't claim that I mis that that mis they misquoted me. Well, I guess in the well, future they could uh, they could make a deep fake of you. Well, they could probably do that now. Like they uh, should have done that. Yeah, that would would have been uh, less. Uh, yeah, what, what do you th what do you think about deep fakes? And like, it's going to be a big thing in the future for uh, uh, for for bunk production. It 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 is, but um, most of the most of the best research that I have, the best research materials, when I'm doing a subject, um, 
are from books, especially mm. books and articles written at the time when the event occurred. And watching the story um, grow and change through documentary research. That's not going to be impacted at all by deep fakes. Um, I think deep fakes will continue to have kind of the same influence that we're getting right now by, you know, the Russian articles on Facebook and that kind of thing. Uh, it's going to continue to cause rifts, but I don't think it's going to have any historical uh, impact. I don't think it's mm. going to have any, any... It wouldn't throw me off the track for a Skeptoid episode. I don't think I've ever used a video quote of something someone said as, you know, evidence of what actually took place in some particular urban legend. I don't know. I'm probably wrong about that. I think there's a lot about that that we can't really predict what, what sort of impact it's going to have. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, what, what do you yeah. think? Well, I think? I'd be interested uh, in your perspective. It's going to be way more prevalent. Uh, I think it's going to be a kind of a period where people transition between... Uh, yeah, trusting video of people to not trusting video of people. And in between, there's going to be all this confusion. Like before, like people uh, would trust photographs until yeah. like, yeah, Photoshop uh, and editing photographs became so easy for people to do that everyone was automatically saying, you know, this is, this is fake, this is Photoshopped. So there might be a period of confusion. Uh, but it could, I don't know, it's, um, it's going to be tricky because people do base things on on videos and if you have these impossible to detect fakes it's going to kind of change the landscape a bit but it's, it's hard to say i don't i don't really know i think perhaps ai might be in general might be a, a, a bigger thing and that uh, you're going to have ai that will act like actual people and mm. uh, pretends to be people and then even pretend to be videos of people and you know i, I could be talking to you uh, yeah, right now as an AI like in say I don't know 10-15 years time and it will be indistinguishable from the real thing even down to everything we're actually saying and the little laughs and jokes and things like that a lot it's of people be... say I'm already indistinguishable from a robot <laughs> yeah I get that uh, I get that sometimes <laughs> I think there, there's definitely going to be an interesting arms race though between detection technologies yeah. and, and, and the faking technologies um, that you know, that never really, we, we kept seeing stuff when Photoshop became um, bigger and bigger and manipulation of photos. We kept seeing news about um, detection technologies, and I assume they're still out there, but I don't hear news about it anymore. Yeah, there, I mean, there are certain tools you can use to kind of detect if a photo has been edited, but there's also ways around them. Like you, A lot of the stuff you do is degrading the photograph, yeah. uh, so it kind of averages everything out. Yeah, and so these techniques the don't work. Yeah, yeah, and some of the you know the techniques now, like the the uh, the AI techniques, the deep neural networks that they have for uh, kind of faking scenes, can be used to make it so it's almost indistinguishable from the real thing. Yeah, you've got AIs now that can take a photo of a landscape in summer and change it to the same photo in winter, in a way that's almost indistinguishable from reality, uh, wow. just by its its knowledge of uh, what what landscapes look like in winter and summer. So, uh, yeah, the, I don't think wow. the arms race is actually going to keep up with uh, with that type of thing. I suppose, like, you know, AI doing it will be a, a big thing. AI debunking is, I think, uh, uh, something that's going to be in the future as well. Like, uh, I'm hoping to get, like, eventually AI robots, like, scouring Twitter and Facebook and finding people saying things that are wrong and then gently explaining to them in a nice tone of voice that, uh, you know, why they are wrong. 
doing doing you know doing what I do, but but at scale. Yeah. <laughs> but well, we'll see. Let's go the future. You know more about this than I do. Do you think it's possible um, that there could be something like uh, like a, a an originality key, some encrypted key embedded in original video that's that's authentic? Yeah, and you, you know, could, so, so fake videos wouldn't have that, and a lot of real videos yeah. wouldn't have that also. But at least be able to prove originality. Yeah, and that, that there are actually uh, things that do that. I mean, there's there's like copyright things that people can embed in videos. Uh, that mm. that's uh, you can you, you can detect straight away without having to look at the actual content. You can kind of get the they do little little modulations of things in the video to to in, in, embed a key. You can certainly have something in the camera uh, that will sign uh, a video file so that if it's edited, then it will, it will know that it's been edited. But the problem with that is that when people take video, take photos, they're always taking very large photographs and then they have to compress them down to a smaller one and they edit them somehow. So you'd have to have some kind of chain of custody of keys like going through that, which could be uh, difficult and because yeah, no one's doing it now. It's, it's the adoption of that isn't going to, really happen so possible but uh uh not that likely to to happen in the future i would say imagine a blockchain for every yeah. for every image that anyone takes from their iphone <laughs> yes that would, that would get quite large uh so, so what are you what are you doing next what's your next project after uh um, science friction so uh, that's something that we're talking a lot about um i'm I'm most eager to get into uh, producing uh, public broadcasting programming. Mm. So we're up here in Central Oregon, and OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, is actually the second largest producer of uh, public television after WGBH Boston. Uh, and um, it's something we don't know a lot, of, a lot about yet, um, and we don't have a good concept for what that show would be yet, but it's something that uh, my my fundraising team is pretty well plugged into the uh, public broadcasting scene up here, and we're we're just starting to dip our toe in and, and, and get our feet wet. You know, doing a podcast is not it's not a business model for a company, and it's not a career for a person. So you know, I've always known that we need to move on to bigger and better things. The movie is is obviously one big step in that direction, science friction. Um, and I just want to looking for the next thing that's going to be a little bit more sustainable on an ongoing basis. And uh, PBS programming is kind of my 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 big goal right now. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. it's a great uh, great platform and uh, and an audience, which is which is good. Yeah, right. and it has it has long legs. I mean that that programming gets, you know, rebroadcast for decades. Yeah, yeah, it's the long tail of PBS. Yeah. Well, that's uh, been great. Very interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, how can people find you on the internet? Best place is just to come to skeptoid.com. Yep. That's sort of the the home base for the podcast and for for everything else that we do. It's um, that's where to dive in. And of course, I'm on all the social media, Brian Dunning and Skeptoid, uh, both. Yeah. So yes, and I highly recommend Skeptoid. Very interesting set of things. You can just go there, look at the full list of episodes, and just scroll down the whole list. There's just you know, endless, <laughs> endlessly fascinating stuff to look at. For uh, it's pretty insane. And the nice, nice little chunks. They're like uh, like twelve, fifteen minute uh, chunks, which are very, very digestible and. And yet they, they cover everything in, in sufficient detail for you to get a good overview. So I highly recommend yeah. it. Thank you. 
All right, Ryan. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming. All right. Great to talk to you, Vic. You too.